Hey, Kev, let's let's follow this trail over here. This looks like there might be something waiting down there. All right. Hey, wait a minute. Do you hear that? Yeah, I thought it was just me. What the heck is that? I don't know what that is. Whoa, do you smell that, too? That's unbelievable. Hey, look. What the? Hey, look, those, those branches are moving over there. What the heck is that? Holy cow, is that what I think it is? Look at that thing. It, oh my god. It's a freaking Sasquatch. Welcome to the Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters podcast. I am your host, W.J. Sheehan. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to our show. My name is W.J. Sheehan, author of the series of books, Bigfoot Terror in the Woods, Sightings and Encounters, nine volumes available at Amazon in paperback, ebook, and Kindle format. And if you're an audiophile, volumes one through eight are recorded for your listening pleasure at Audible, iTunes, and Amazon as well. And by the way, I just wrapped up recording Volume 9, but it's still going to be a little bit with the back and forth between me and my sound engineer before it will actually be there for your listening pleasure. And now, may I introduce you to my brother and co-host, KJ Sheehan. Kev, how are you? I'm doing great. How about you, Bill? Okay, how was Thanksgiving? It was good. It was nice and quiet, as you can tell. Uh, I'm a little healthier than I was last time we recorded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got rid of the noodle, root noodle. You got rid of the Rudolph putty nose. Hey, I don't want to wear this. <laughs> yeah, that's gone, thankfully. Still uh, a little, you know, not quite myself voice-wise. Um, but definitely uh, 10 times better, which is great. Yeah, it sounds good, and you feel better when you're all cleared up. You know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I had to do the work thing yesterday, and I kind of felt like I was better off doing that. Yeah, I think it's better to be a little busy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, at this point in time, I didn't want to be settled around the table and, uh, you know, Getting into that, oh, what was me mode or, you know, I don't know. I just felt it was it was better for me to uh, be I, busy. <laughs> I agree with you 100 percent, you know, so do you uh, do you have some rain up there today in New York? Uh, just a lot of cloud cover, solid overcast. OK, we have rain here. Mm-hmm. Woke me up early this morning, the rain on the roof, which is good, though. We need some rain here. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, rain is a blessing. And I always said, uh, don't complain about the rainy days because uh, if you turn the knob on your faucet and nothing comes out, (laughs) you'll be praying for rain in a hurry. I'll tell you, no kidding. A couple of my friends live down in uh, San Diego, Los Angeles area, and they're like, the reservoirs have like no water in them, which uh, is pretty scary. That is. And what are you going to do about that, my friend? Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, obviously, Kev, the water supply that was given from, you know, runoff from the mountaintop, snow melt, et cetera, et cetera, was not meant to supply the amount of people that have moved into the neighborhood. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got... Uh, two or three different states and millions upon millions of people all trying to divvy up for their lawns, their swimming pools, car washing. Uh, none of this stuff was ever to be in play uh, for the water supply. So, you know. No doubt uh, about it. Uh, I don't know what the solution's going to be for that, but people got to kind of wake up a little bit. Uh, you know, it's, I mean, part of the solution is in some of these really dry places, mm-hmm. you know, like Phoenix, Arizona and stuff like that, which they've done a tremendous job there in terms yeah. of uh, uh, like not trying to convert the desert into uh, a grassland. 
Yeah. Um, you know, so I, th- I think I think they've they've started to use you know what's called gray water, like the you know runoff from irrigation and stuff like that for other gray water uses. Uh, or recycled water or retreated water uh, that's not clean enough for drinking, but use it to water the grass and stuff like that. So I think there are, have been tremendous improvements, mm-hmm. uh, but we still face uh, face a tough battle here. Yeah, and you know, just as a side note, and then we'll get into the, yeah. the show. Uh, a while ago, myself and some of my coworkers. Uh, got on the topic of water usage here on Long Island. And I I don't know know what even opened up the conversation. So we started investigating water hogs. In other words, who was using the most water on Long Island? Because the news was uh, telling us, you know, water your grass for 15 minutes every two or three days. Don't do this. Don't do that. So we launched our little investigation. Take a guess, Kev, at how much water one estate out in Southampton was oh. using was using annually. No this idea. Is, this is one property. No idea. Twenty-three million gallons of water annually. Now, what were they doing? Just running a hose into the ocean? <laughs> yeah, and. Uh, we got an overview of the property, and it looked to be like a large house, a lot of green grass, a lot of gardens, etc. And that was one estate out in the township of Southampton where a lot of rich dudes live. 23 million gallons mm. of water. Mm. I mean, it's criminal. that. Forget about penalizing them or charging more for overuse or abuse. That is just like uh, total. Uh, you're just being a hog. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what to compare it to. It certainly sounds like a big number, but I don't know how many gallons a normal house does. Do you? Well, it's not 23 million gallons. I look yeah. at my bill every time it comes in, which is quarterly, I think. Yeah. And uh, I'm not even scratching... Uh, I mean, what I'm using next to what that dude is using is like a Dixie cup yeah. uh, versus a, 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 a Olympic swimming pool. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. There's no comparison. Anyways, what do we have in our cryptids in the news and other I was going to say, as interesting as it is to talk about water hogs, I thought a water hog was some kind of cryptid for a minute there. <laughs> <laughs> Look out for the water hog. Watch out for the water hog. I've seen him. He's quite ugly. He reminds me of your wife. He has a pig nose and lives in the water. (laughs) He is a water hog. Vanna, I thought your wife was swimming when I saw the water hog. (laughs) Oh, no. All right, this podcast is going to be a challenge, I can tell already. All right, so man, we are this one uh, today, Bill, in cryptids in the news and other oddities. We're going to go back in time, and we're going to look at you know um, a sighting of a creature back in 1900, uh, and then a little while after that in East Africa. But it's really along the lines of what could be out there uh, in terms of. Uh, the fact that, you know, we talk about the hairy man and uh, if the hairy man is a flesh and blood, flesh and blood creature, which I believe certainly a lot of the sightings are flesh and blood creatures, um, then how could it be possible that a creature like that exists and yet we don't know about it? Where did it come from, etc.? So in this case, we're going to go back and we're going to look at a creature that was document, documented back in 1900. Um, by a gentleman by the name of Captain William Hitchens, who was part of uh, the intelligence and administrative section of the British East Africa Corps in the 1900s. And uh, he was over there in East Africa and saw 
some creatures. He's going to talk about them in this account. And then uh, shortly after that, relatively speaking, another person saw them and they ended up being in uh, Discovery magazine um, back then in the early 1900s. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, so w- oh, once again, as you, once again, as you get going, Kev, uh, not that we need this type of uh, uh, dossier on a person who's talking about this stuff, but just consider the guy for a minute and the job he has uh, as he reports on this. You know, he's not some wandering homeless person, you know, telling you a story. I mean, you got to cut a guy like this some slack, you know. Yeah, both sightings were by, uh, you know, one was by a British officer and the other, uh, well, both British officers that were out in uh Africa, you know, and they don't want to appear like they're crazy. Otherwise, you know, they lose their job, right? They have nothing to gain right, by talking right. about this stuff. So right. so let's jump into this one. They're both pretty short, but pretty interesting. The creature, by the way, is called an agogwe. Mm-hmm. A-G-O-G-W-E. Agogwe. Okay. Okay. And, you know, you can Google them and uh, and read the different accounts and things like that. So here here we go. And this is uh, as told by uh, Captain William Hutchins first. Okay. So he says, some years ago, I was sent on an official lion hunt in this area. While waiting in the forest glade for a man-eater, I saw two small brown Furry creatures come from the dense forest on one side of the glade and then disappear into the thicket on the other side of the glade. They were like little men, about four feet high, walking upright, but clad in russet hair. The native hunter with, with me gazed in mingled fear and amazement. He later remarked that they are the Agagwe. Furry little men that one does not see but once in a lifetime. Oh, interesting. That sounds familiar, right? Yeah, it sounds almost like juvenile Bigfoot. Yeah, or a different species, like yeah. I would say. Yep. It's uh, some different species that could be connected. But here, here, even a native that's there sees these creatures and says, Oh, Agagwe, and you only will see them once in a lifetime. Yeah, so amazing. the fact there's these little man-like creatures that exist in this part of the world back then, and mm-hmm. even the natives that are out there, of course, you know, in nature every day, they mm-hmm. would see one but once in a lifetime. Right, which brings me back to the infamous totem pole here in North America, where these native tribes all had these totems and depictions of the hairy men. Yep. It wasn't like they were running around and seeing them every day like a squirrel. Right. But they knew of them. Exactly. Exactly. Interesting. So then uh, we go on and we see that, but only one year later, British officer, so another British officer, as I said, uh, Cuthbert Burgoyne publicized an incident that happened in 1927. And this came out in Discovery Magazine 11 years after that, in which he supposedly saw the same creatures that Hitchens had seen years before. And here's the quote from uh, Cuthbert Burgoyne. We were sufficiently near the land to see objects clearly with a glass of only 12 magnifications. There was a sloping beach with light bush above upon which several dozen baboons were hunting. Uh, They were hunting for and picking up shellfish of crabs. Yeah. Yeah. To judge, based on the movements they're making. So sorry, it's written in Old English. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Two pure white baboons were amongst them. These were very rare, but I had heard of them previously. Mm -hmm. As we watched, two little brown men walked together out of the bush and down among the baboons. They were certainly not any known monkey, nor did they look like a monkey. 
They must have been akin or they would have been disturbed or they would have disturbed the baboons. They were too far away to see in detail, but these small human-like creatures were probably between four and five feet tall, quite upright, and graceful in figure. Yeah. You know, you're talking four and now five feet tall, his estimation. Yep. That's a pretty substantial creature. Yep. You know, I mean, I'm five ten and a half or something like that. Five foot tall is a pretty substantial creature to be walking around upright. And the fact that the baboons didn't seem to be disturbed by them uh, is evidence that they had been living like peaceably with them. You Absolutely. Know? But, you um, know, here the guy is looking at baboons and not thinking that these are some type of monkey. You know, they're something yeah. special. Yeah. Um, which is interesting, you know, and it sounds like in both accounts, based on how they're moving, how they look, you know, both describe them as little men. So mm-hmm. there's one last account here. OK, so from the from the 1950s. Kev, let me interrupt yeah. you for a minute. Sure. That last account, was that in the same area as the original one or just? Yeah, roughly the same area. Yeah. Wow. OK. Yeah. Interesting that they both saw a pair also. Exactly. Exactly. Huh. That is interesting. Yeah. So then this third sighting in the 1950s by someone named Charles Cordier. Uh, and Charles was a professional animal collector. Okay. So this guy, he, he knows his animals, right? Hanging uh-huh. out in Africa. So he was in Zaire. And he saw this creature that he reported as an agagui, and it was entangled in one of the bird snares that he had set, right, to catch birds. Wow. But he, he, but he said it escaped before he could do anything. Okay. And here's his quote. He said, it fell on its face, turned over, sat up, took the noose right off of its feet, and walked away before the nearby African could do anything. Wow. You know, and uh, it it shows intelligence right there that you could, first of all, you know you're caught. Second of all, how do I get out? Uh, Thirdly, the escape by removing the noose, looking and seeing and cognitively uh, determining uh, my route of escape, which is to get this noose off of my legs. And then walking away. That's almost like human uh, cognitive ability. You know what I mean? It's, Absolutely. It's, you know, it's not like some animal. Lo- I took some fishing line off a seagull a couple of months ago when I was fishing. Yep. Uh, this bird had a bunch of monofilament wrapped around its leg. And uh, I just thought quickly in the moment, grabbed the monofilament, uh, and the thing started flapping and trying to get away from me, not knowing what I was doing. But I reeled this bugger in and clipped the line off very close to its foot uh, without actually having to grab it and get it all off. Because I knew that this thing eventually is going to get snagged on something and that would be the end of it, you know? Yep. Uh, but no, that is freaking crazy about that getting caught in a snare, the fowler's snare, as they say. Exactly, exactly. And then, so one last bit here. So, yeah. you know, this, uh, I talked about the second account, which was uh, Cuthbert Burgoyne, <coughs> excuse me. Um, and he was telling people about this account after he saw it, right? And it was reported in Discovery Magazine. And he said later, <coughs> excuse me, a big, uh, a friend and big game hunter told me he was in East Africa with his wife and three other hunters and saw a mother, father, and child of apparently a sim- similar animal species. Wow. And he said they walked across the far side of a bush clearing, but the natives loudly forbade him to shoot at the creature. Oh, that's interesting, huh? Don't shoot. Yeah, so he was going to shoot at it, you know, which leads you to believe, like, they thought of this creature. I mean, I'm jumping 
across a chasm here, but it sounds yeah. like they thought of the creature as some more intelligent form of life that you would not hunt. Right. Something to be respected and not uh, taken down, you exactly. know, for food. Exactly. So pretty, uh, pretty interesting. So this is uh, the Agali. And um, I, again, I, I like these stories, these accounts, because uh, just like the creatures on the bottom of the ocean uh, that we likely do not know about yet, we haven't discovered, you know, mm -hmm. the possibility, like I've covered some of the lake monsters, uh, like Champ uh, up in Lake, lake Champlain in Vermont, etc. Lots of them out in Western Canada. You know, the, to me, the likelihood of some creature living under the sea that we haven't identified yet, some ancient creature uh, or a creature still living that we believe is extinct in the ocean is very likely. And right. it's also possible that there is some creature that we don't know about yet, uh, haven't identified fully yet with, from a scientific standpoint, that exists in the forests and or jungles around the world. Yeah, and listen, what's the stigma about Bigfoot? Because we say that uh, we have something we haven't identified. Well, in my opinion, thousands upon thousands of people have identified the Bigfoot. And it's just like a refusal to admit it's there. I think it's some type of like fear mongering or persons in power or... or, or uh, 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 I'm stumbling for what I'm looking for here. Yeah, I mean, I, you yeah. know me, Bill. I, I think it's simpler. I think that, I've said it before, and it's a fact, is that there are a lot of hoaxers out there. Yeah. So, unfortunately, because there's so many hoaxers out there, then folks, they don't want to be the one that got hoaxed. You know yeah. what I mean? And publicize the fact that, they saw this thing and then find out that it was a hoax. Or even if they don't find out that it was a hoax, people think like, ah, you got fooled. You know, that was a kid in a Halloween costume, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm yep. exaggerating, of course. But but I think that makes the whole Bigfoot phenomena so much tougher because it is known that there are so many hoaxers out there. Mm -hmm. Well, it doesn't get away from things like our... Uh survival map from the military that shows it as no, being a, no, no, exactly. a dangerous and, animal. And it doesn't get away from the fact that, you know, like I've been to some of these real, really rural places yeah. in British Columbia and stuff like that. It's, you know, it's not somebody dressed up in a furry suit walking around. That's right. That's right. In the forest there, you know. You know, and if you consider just little uh, minutiae, like the nests that are found where four and six inch limbs, fresh wood, have been twisted off the trunk of a tree and put in situ as a, a nest or a little hut. You know, I don't care how much you try, you and I and ten other men are not going to twist a six inch limb off of a fresh tree. Right. I don't know what has that kind of power or how you would even measure that type of strength. But that thing is a freak, one powerful monster. And in my opinion, it can only be, uh, like in the Marble Mountain uh, video, a Bigfoot. And the strength that they have is beyond comparison. It's off the charts. Yep, so, no uh, doubt about it. You know. You remember that uh, account that I had a while ago, Kev, that I've been through? Well... We'll do it again sometime, but that guy had installed a clamp, a master lock, and internal uh, lag bolts, uh, uh, carriage bolts, through his Frigidaire floor freezer, and it was torn off. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't do that with a, a steel chisel and a lump hammer. Uh, it would probably take me an hour or two just to hack away at everything and get that off. Uh, and something grabbed that and wrenched it free and took his venison. Yeah. It wasn't a bear. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't a grizzly bear. <laughs> Unbelievable. Well, that's, Kemp, that stuff is really interesting, and I'm with you on that. Uh, as far as the historicity of the events goes... 
uh, three different people or groups of people. Obviously, neither one of them was there alone. Right. Uh, you're getting the account from an individual, but there was some type of little group or safari of sorts with them. And uh, also that the uh, Agagwe were going down to where the baboons were scrapping around for su- shellfish. Right. So uh, that's that's something uh, that the uh, Bigfoots have been seeing on the beach. I have that account on the sandbar. Uh, you know, they go down there snooping around like other animals do. It's a place to forage. Well, I told you, too. Like, I personally saw, and I would have lost this bet, although I read about it, and it's a known thing that brown bears or grizzly bears do up in Alaska. I saw them clamming. You know, at low tide, they were out there uh, in uh, muck, digging with their huge uh, paws and digging up big clams and breaking them open and eating them. Perfect. You know? You know, it's like the South Shore Oyster Festival. (laughs) (laughs) Seafood bar. There you go. Uh, that's interesting, Kip. Well, is that a is that a wrap on that Agagwe? That's a wrap on Agagwe. Wow, that was very interesting, man. Excellent, excellent uh, work on that. Now, I have a, a real talk about history. Uh, I have a really uh, strange tale here, and let me just jump into it, and uh, everybody will get the gist of it rather quickly. Uh, this excerpt was taken uh, reportedly from a traveler's diary that had actually been purchased at an estate sale. It was from the 1800s, and the writer's name is believed to be Reinhard Geffy. In the course of our travels through Oregon, we learned the history of many of the men we met. I will begin with a gentleman who, to use his own words, bought a farm seven years ago. This was because he had found it impossible to both raise and educate a growing family on a salary of $1,000 per year that he earned as a Presbyterian minister. His estate consists of 500 acres of land and lies on the slope of the coastal range towards the Willamette Valley. And he was $120 in debt after he had bought this land, with him being long since entirely debt-free. He was utterly ignorant at the time of the business when he began, and was content to imitate his neighbor's for several years, plowing, sowing, and harvesting when they did. He learned by degrees to walk alone, having lost his two sons in the most hideous of events thought possible to man, saying that he had now ventured to bring much of the land that his predecessor had thought worthless for wheat into cultivation. A little strange reading here. This year, that land was producing between 15 to 25 bushels per acre, while much of his wheat land yielded from 40 to 50 bushels of the same. He has a very comfortable eight-room house and a splendid 12-acre orchard full of fruit trees. This gentleman told us that he had enjoyed life to the fullest, But some years back, he had fallen prey to a great depression brought about by some demons from hell. While working the harvest, he, his two young sons, and three hired hands were in the fields, with the sons being more involved in play than any work, since they were not of age for strenuous activities. From some distance... One of the hands had sighted two of what he described as behemoth hairy men 
running from the wood line across the wheat field towards his sons. Once they had reached the ewes and seized upon them, the beasts from hell retreated back to the wood line with the speed of a horse in gallop, carrying the boys kicking and screaming under their arms. By the time the help reached the gentleman and he had gathered his wits, no small amount of time had passed. The four men retrieved a shotgun and several rifles and commenced to follow the trail through the parted wheat into the trees in swift pursuit of these hairy man-beasts. Even after searching for hours, nothing had been seen or heard. A posse of some 25 locals was assembled and headed back into the forest on horseback. And many more men and women joined the search as the days wore on. The trackers came upon a trail of great prints, that's great prints as in footprints, which led them to a scene of horrific carnage beneath the pines. The youths were discovered sprawled over the high boughs of a pine many, many miles from the gentleman's farmstead. They seemed to have been torn apart with many large pieces of their flesh having been seemingly bitten away. The demons had been covered in fur like that of a bear and were of the greatest stature and girth. They seemed to spirit themselves across the field with the greatest speed and dexterity. The gentleman, a local Presbyterian, laid his only sons to rest with the community by his side. What the heck do you make of that, Kev? Holy cow, we should have had the uh, parental warning at the beginning of that one. <laughs> <laughs> Holy smoke. Whoa. Yeah, I, it's a little confusing, the writing. I did my best with it when I was kind of transcribing it, but he kind of got involved with trying to make a living or making more money and uh, uh, was originally copying what the other people around him were doing, having no real knowledge of what he was doing. Sure. And then uh, actually started working out pretty well for him from what it reads. But then his two sons get dragged off by, uh, he calls them demons from hell, but the description was hairy men. Yeah, I mean, the demons from hell is uh, fitting as well. Yeah. Well, listen, anything that grabs your children away from you and takes them off. Yeah, that's a demon from hell. Yeah. You call them what you will. I don't care what it looks like. Yeah. And they uh, found these two boys uh, in the trees. I don't, I don't mm. understand that whole in the trees thing. But it seems to come up uh, periodically. I know I have a number of accounts where uh, bodies were found in trees on limbs. Uh, I, I, I know cats do that, right? I don't uh, even know. Well, I mean, big cats do that. Uh, oh, a, yeah. a cougar or a cheetah, uh, a lion. Uh, they'll, they'll drag something up. Uh, a leopard will drag something up into the branches for like... Safety, or to get it off the ground, you know. Okay, but uh, I, I I don't get that whole thing. It's really creepy, man. Yes, sir. Creepy it is, and violent, and jeez, like my God. I mean, you know, you know, back then, right? It was the early eighteen hundreds where this journal was written. Uh, you know, you see some horrible things, but watching your children get carried off by some huge beast and then finding their dead bodies like uh, that's horrible yeah but you know back then kev aside from this you could be out there living and some uh small gang of marauders oh i know yeah just out gunning you or out muscling oh, no you doubt about it i don't just, i don't know how the people did it you know yeah they could just I mean, kill if the you. plague or whatever it was didn't get them you know 
somebody got him. Yeah. And it, it, was, it wasn't a happy ending. Yeah. They could just shoot you dead, rip you off, steal all yeah. your stuff, take your food, take your family. Yep. You know, you you don't, there was nothing you could do, you know? No. Uh, if you resisted, you were shot dead, and that was the end of that. Exactly. You know. You remember the old uh, scene in Clint Eastwood's uh, High Plains Drifter? Oh, yeah. You know, when he turned the tide on those guys, they said, that's a nice horse, mister. And then, of course, he had his 244s and his thing, and he pulled them out <laughs> and started blasting people left and right off of the horses. <laughs> I, lo- I love that stuff, man. Yeah, the, the ultimate in, uh, like, the good angel, right? That's what he portrayed. He'd just kind of come out of nowhere, uh, subdue all the nastiness, and then ride off into the sunset, you know? Oh, yeah. My favorite <laughs> was the outlaw Josie Wales. Excuse me. That's what I was talking about. What oh, did okay. I say? I said High Plains Drifter? Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about Outlaw Josie Wales. Josie Wales. When he meets the bounty hunter. Yeah. And he tells him, Mr. Wales, I'm a bounty hunter. And he says, dying ain't no way to make a living, boy. (laughs) (laughs) A precursor to what was inevitable. (laughs) You know, and then every time he said something nasty, we'd go, and clam out some water chewing tobacco. I used to like when he spit on the dog. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, good stuff. Good stuff, uh, Clint. Yeah, yeah. All good. Well, what do we have in our listener mail today? Tim? Yeah, we got some good listener mail, Bill, following up on some of the uh, things that we've covered the last couple of weeks. So first one comes in from Patrick. And uh, Patrick's subject is Silver Cube sighted in Missouri. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which is, by the way, where the outlaw Josie Wales took place. So, (laughs) coincidentally. (laughs) (laughs) And he writes, hello, guys. Absolutely love the podcast. You two make a great team and really put some amazing content out there for people. So you mentioned on one of your recent podcasts about a cube that had been sighted in Missouri. And if any listeners have had an experience like that. Back in 2010, I was running a siding crew west of St. Louis, Missouri, and noticed one day a cube in the sky. It looked to be spinning, but stationary. It was in the distance, so it was hard to gauge size, but it was big enough to see its shape. I told my coworkers to look, and they all said it must be a balloon. For the next 10 minutes, I kept looking back, and it was in the same spot spinning. And then all of a sudden, I heard fighter jets coming from the direction of Scott Air Force Base, and they went right over the spot that I saw the cube. Now, granted, the airport wasn't far away, but jets flying over wasn't a common occurrence. Maybe it was nothing, but when I heard you talk about the cube, it seemed too similar for me not to say something. Keep up the great work, Patrick. Yeah, very interesting, Patrick. And uh, I have an account in my book, UFO Sightings and Encounters, that I entitled The uh, Diamond. And, you know, if you turn a cube on its corner... Uh, and it's glistening in the sunlight as it's spinning, uh, that could have an appearance of definitely something faceted, right, Kev? Like sure. a, a diamond or a a, ge- a cut gemstone. Uh, and it sounds to me like Patrick saw uh, what this couple saw up in Maine, I believe it was, that they called a diamond. Uh, and I'm not taking away from what they saw because they th- saw this thing like rise out of a valley, uh, and Patrick was watching this thing stationary in the sky yep. uh, for a period of time. Yet we don't know what these things are. This is a bizarre thing. And I'm sure uh, Patrick had his wits about him and recognized this thing as being a cube, even though his friend said it's a balloon. Yep. Now, if it's a balloon, folks, it's going to move. It doesn't stay in the same spot. Right. Uh, so... There is a lot of ignorance out there regarding sightings. 
and an unwillingness for people just to face up with what it is they're looking at. No doubt about it. So, you know, uh, I don't know what that's about, Kim. What do you think about that? When somebody sees something, they're looking at it, and mentally they immediately try to downplay it as something else. What is going on there that people don't want to face that reality uh, in their life as to what they are seeing? Well, I think it's okay. It's just process elimination. You know what I mean? Like, what is it? Is it a, you know, I mean, is it a plane? Is it a a balloon? Is it a trash bag blowing around in the sky? You know, um, it's it's kind of, I think it's it's a normal process. I mean, I think the key thing is that one uh, uh, UAP hunter, right, the retired government guy, I forget his name, that was on TV, and we talked about what he said before. Mm-hmm. But if I loosely quote him here, he said, you know, one of the tests is you're comparing it to other things you've seen before, and does it move in a way like you've never seen anything else move? That's right. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I, and that's a key thing. And uh, I forget the exact things he said, but that's like one of the tests I use when I see right. something odd. I'm like, is it moving in a way that I've never seen anything move before? Yeah. Um, you know, certainly. And then you're trying to compare it with a visual uh, uh, list of things in your brain uh, right. that you could match it to, right? You're, right? you're looking for a pattern or whatever, consciously or unconsciously, of what it what it is based on things you've seen before. Yeah, and I had used, uh, I think that fellow's name was Alessandro. Uh, but I had used that very same criteria uh, during my first UFO sighting that I put in the book at the end of Rogers Lane in Remsenburg. And uh, I was describing to my friend, Kev, you remember Derek Van Maren, right? Yep. So Derek and I were sitting in my F-150, uh, uh, my, my uh, Econoline van at the time. And I was describing to him and pointing out to him a satellite. And all of a sudden the satellite stopped. And immediately I said to myself, satellites don't stop. And then it commenced to go in the other direction. And was making hard right angles and whatnot in the sky. Like it was it was like an etcher sketch. Yeah. And then this thing bolted at an unbelievable rate of speed up to the northeast. Uh it was incalculable because I know what a plane looks like coming overhead at like uh, 300 miles an hour. Uh, and this thing must have took off at 5,000 miles an hour. And uh, so I was using that same checklist. You know, is it unlike anything you've seen before? Does it exhibit strange behavior? Yeah. Does you it know, move unlike anything you've seen before or know to exist? Yeah. Exactly. All of those things uh, would be a commonplace checklist. Yeah. And I used the same on my first sighting. Yeah, so, so I think part of it, Bill, you know, you were asking the question of why do people do that. I, th- I think it's just a natural process of elimination. Like, what yeah. am I looking at? Yeah. You don't want to but, jump to a conclusion. I mean, unless you have a popular YouTube channel that you're trying to trick people into watching, you know. Yeah. Um, but, but there are people who try to avoid it. Yeah, I didn't see that, honey. Don't say nothing. We didn't. Oh, see of course. Anything. Yeah. Well, they're no, afraid of the repercussions. I mean, we've been right. talking about that for years. You know. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to yeah. lose your job. That's why it's so interesting when you see so many of these sightings of UFOs and uh, hairy man stuff like that by law enforcement personnel, and when they. You know, you know, it's a rare occasion when they come forward after they see something. But that tells you how much, how convinced they are that they really did see something. Yeah, that they're yeah. willing to risk their career, risk promotion. Same's true for the airline pilots and stuff like that. I mean, you know, if you're seeing potentially quote unquote seeing things as an airline pilot, boy, you know, it's likely you may not get that next promotion. So you better feel yeah. strongly about it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Well, thank you, Patrick, for that excellent uh, report. Yeah, good stuff. 
All right, and uh, we have another UFO sighting. Uh, this one coming in from Jason in Utah. And he says, hey, guys, love the podcast. I'm a 49-year-old truck driver from Utah. I've been driving for almost 28 years. I've also been an avid hunter, outdoorsman for my entire life. And I have definitely experienced my share of the strange and unusual phenomenons of this world. So I have many crazy stories, but with no proof and very few other witnesses, most of them are just that crazy stories. Believe it or not, but that's what I saw sort of stories. But on August 16th, 2022 at 4.15 p.m., I had a profound experience and sightings of these cube, diamond, polyhedron type craft. Wow. Definitely the same type that was filmed by the pilot above Columbia and the sighting in Missouri that you mentioned on one of your uh, recent podcasts. I actually was sitting on the dock on the lake in Wisconsin preparing to take a picture of the scenery when one of these crafts came over the top of me at a speed that I still cannot comprehend, making no sound. Hmm. As it shot away from me and zigzagged multiple times across the sky and then shot up into the clouds and zipped away from left to right in less than three seconds. But with my phone in hand, I was able to hit record for its final half-second move and captured the moment. I then filmed the empty sky for almost 30 more seconds, hoping it would show itself again. But I saw nothing. So I went into the house, anxious to see what I had just recorded. I watched the video several times, over and over again, and I saw nothing. This was upsetting. I was certain I had got back, I, I had got the end of its flight on film or, or recorded. The footage was shot on an iPhone 13 Max at 60 frames per second in high definition. So I decided to go frame by frame and look at it again. And there was not only that, but unbeknownst to me, my next 28 seconds of footage of what I thought was clear blue sky was in reality these crafts zipping around the skies above me faster than the human eye can see them. Oh, that's freaking weird. Yeah. They come in and out of my video at least a dozen times in a multitude of directions. And there is one that basically flips and tumbles in a hovering pattern right in front of me. But again, I could not see it when I was standing there. That night, I filed a report to MUFON they ended up telling me that they had no idea what they were and they had no other reports from the area, but they did give me a filing number. I've gone over the video more times than I can account and I've shared it with a few close friends and family members. That's freaking strange, Kev. What do you make of that? I, I mean, it's, uh, it's one of those things where, you, you know, the phone... Recording at that rate, it could possibly see some things that you don't see if you go through frame by frame. I don't know what the heck that is, Bill, but it passes that test that I was just talking about, right? That it, yeah. It moves in a way that you've never seen anything else move. If you just count the one that he saw, mm -hmm. right, zigzagging across the sky and moving at a speed that he hadn't seen before. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, certainly going to catch your attention, you know, when you set eyes on something like that. Come 100%. on. Yeah. You know, and here he is describing what I was just talking about, this polyhedron, this multifaceted looking thing, reflecting light, flashing, uh, you know, with many surfaces, shiny metal. Yeah. Uh, it's going to appear like a lot of things, tumbling. Uh, he used a lot of terminology there, which, you know, like you're grabbing for words, you know. Uh, but uh, I don't know, man. These these things are out there, and we have no uh, no explanation as to what they are or where they came from. Yep. Wow. Very pretty, bizarre. Pretty crazy. Yeah. Thank you so much for uh, sharing that, Jason. Uh, yep. From from uh, Utah. Yeah. Fantastic. In Wisconsin. Man. 
Fantastic. Yeah, and our last email bill comes in from the winner of the sign book contest. Yes. Yes, and Christy writes in, Hello again, Bill and Kevin. As always, I couldn't wait to listen to the latest episode of Bigfoot Terry in the Woods. I was overjoyed to hear that I had been chosen as the winner of the sign book. What great news. I am never disappointed when listening to your podcast and feel so lucky to receive the book. Yeah, I mean, Christy, you don't know how lucky you are. He's my brother, and I don't have an autograph copy. <laughs> <laughs> and she says, thanks again for just being yourselves and adding so much light to the sometimes pretty dark world. And if you're ever in wild, wonderful West Virginia, please don't hesitate to give me a shout. God bless you both. Christy. <laughs> Yeah, Christy, and, uh, well, uh, you know, by the time she hears this podcast, uh, I'll probably be uh, heading out to the P.O. next week, Kevin. I'll send also uh, that cool mug, that tumbler, uh, down your way, too, from uh, Rick in Ohio. Yeah, and, Bill, you know, like, feel free to drop an autographed copy of one of your books in there for yeah. me as well. Unfortunately... The box that I've selected for the tumbler. <laughs> That's what you said last time. Yeah, At least you you're can, consistent. Yeah, you're going to see, Kev, that it really is. Just fits, yeah. Uh, like a perfect fit for yeah, this tumbler. Folks, I'm probably going to get one of those Amazon boxes at my front door that's like four feet by four foot with a <laughs> mug inside of it. Yeah, with a pencil in it. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if Jeff Bezos is aware of some of the boxes uh, his employees are sending well, that's out. Well, that's all done all, uh, by robotics. So You think so? 100%, yeah. So the robot just picks uh, box number 128, which is supposed to be for... Uh, they make a mistake. Yeah. Because it doesn't happen all the time, thankfully. But when it does yeah. happen, you're like, what the heck is this? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What did I buy? Don't, what is that? Exactly. You know. And then the funny thing is, inside of the bag, there's some of those little puffy things that are supposed to keep things from breaking. Yeah. And it's just like they're totally inadequate. It's like there's four of these things in this giant empty void with what you purchase, like, flipping around in there during shipment. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, that shows you. Like, in that case, it definitely probably picked the wrong box because it put yeah. in the packing material for the smaller box, right? Yeah, yeah. It's just it's funny the way things no, happen. I know. I know. Wow. Okay, Kev. Well, that was interesting. And that Agogway thing was really cool. Yeah, uh, kind of a good good uh, origin story. Yeah, well, I love that stuff. You know, yeah. there's, there's some interesting data out there. Uh, that deserves being uh, brought to the light uh, again and again, you know, by somebody. And, you know, it, I'm glad we're doing it or you're doing it. Uh, and, and and anyways, folks, if you should find yourself walking along in the woods, in the Northeast, the Northwest, the Southland, the Midwest, you better remember one thing, my friend. Always carry more gun than you think you're going to need. Sleep tight. <laughs>